episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, writers, directors, composers, production designers, costume designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, of course, our wonderful actors, and so much more. A fun show for you today, but first, because I'm expecting probably some technical difficulties, uh, I'm doing the show. I'm not in studio today. I am remote at home due to automotive issues. Thank you very much, not Ford Motor Company. So I'm calling in to the show. Uh, We do have a live guest who's also calling in today. So we're going to see how this phone, phone melding goes. But speaking of guests, great guest coming up at the midpoint of the show, writer-director Anna Elizabeth James is going to be joining me live to talk about her new film, Deadly Illusions. Now, anybody familiar with Anna's uh, prior films, she's got her horse films, as I like calling them, Destined to Ride, that stars the wonderful Maddie Carroll, Joey Lawrence, Denise Richards, and Emma's Chance with Greer Grammer and Joey Lawrence. Um, family fair, uh, enjoyable for the whole family with deadly illusions. This is not family fair. So if you're all excited, Ooh, it's an Anna Elizabeth James film. Take a step back. This is for the mature audience. Uh, it's a psychosexual thriller, murder mystery, uh, and we're going to, I can't wait to get into detail with Anna about this film. Because it is so different from anything that she has done before. But Anna will be joining us at the midpoint of the show. Before then, though, and you're going to hear in a moment my exclusive interview, pre-recorded interview, with Sebastian Siegel talking about the incredible grace and grit. But first, did you check out any movies this past weekend? In the Heights, so anticipated, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda adaptation of his stage musical didn't do quite what everyone was hoping for at the box office. The film has quite a few problems with it, not the least of which are talent that most people have not heard of, a plot, where is the plot, Uh, And also the push for diversity issue. Diversity and and inclusivity are hot topics. And yes, they are vital, vitally important uh, in the culture today. But by the same token, I think we're at a point a lot of people are getting turned off by this being shoved at them. Uh, I think this was another uh, problem with some people staying away from the movie theater to see In the Heights. A film that people did not stay away from making it the number one comedy in America right now. Dion Taylor, my dear friend, 
Meet the Blacks 2, The House Next Door. It is uproarious. It is hilarious. Uh, it has Cot Williams as a vampire. Um, it's a sequel to the 2016 film starring Mike Epps. It is, if you just want to escape, if you just want to have fun, Meet the Blacks 2 is the movie that you want to see. Uh, it only opened in limited in 420 theaters across the United States. It's expanding this week, though, because of the great success. So if you are looking just to have a good time, go see Meet the Blacks 2. I can't recommend it highly enough. We've also got for the family, we've got Peter Rabbit 2 out there, um, which is another joyful, fun film. And who doesn't love Peter Rabbit? Uh... And a little later in the show, we're going to talk about what's coming up this week. Uh, I'm very excited about all three of the films that I'm going to mention that are, that are coming up this week. But, you know, in case you've forgotten, you know, every Monday we're right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can, AdrenalineRadio.com, you can find us, or you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page uh, and watch the live stream there, which traditionally you would see my ever-changing tablescapes every week but because I'm not in studio today there's nothing um so <laughs> you don't need to go to the Facebook live stream today you can just listen in uh to today's show but if you miss us on Mondays you can always catch up uh, on all of the podcast platforms after the live radio show. We go into podcast format generally by Tuesdays. You can find all of our shows, more than seven years worth, all available on BehindTheLensOnline.net and then on all of the podcast platforms, Apple, Podbean, Speaker, Spreaker, um, iTunes, we're there. So if you ever just want to kick back, take a listen, some great, great, great interviews over the years on there for your entertainment. But getting back to today's show, right now you're going to hear from Sebastian Siegel, writer-director, about Grace and Grit. This is an incredible film. It is visual poetry with emotional poetry that stems from the visuals that Sebastian and his team create. Cinematographer is Shan Lillestrand. Uh, what he does visually with this very emotional story is amazing. And that is only made more powerful by Christopher Bell's editing. And then everything is tied together by an incredible scoring by, from Catherine and Kim Kluge. This is the story. Uh, it's based on Ken, philosopher Ken Wilber's book, Grace and Grit, which he adapted from the journals of his wife, Treya. She, shortly after they were married, as in they didn't even get to go on a honeymoon, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she kept journals chronicling her journey with cancer treatment, trying to beat it, moving on with life, being productive in life. Um, unfortunately, she did pass on but not without making a huge mark on the world, a mark that Ken has continued um, through his, his philosophical ideals of uh, transcendence. What we really see unfold here is a transcendent love, 
the film focuses, Sebastian very smartly focuses the film on love as the primary uh, plot point, with cancer being a supporting storyline. Very, very influenced by Terrence Malick, uh, thanks in large part to the cinematography, exquisite imagery happening here. Uh, and Sebastian and his DP and Sean, they they make really great use of all the tools in the cinematic toolbox with superimpositions, dissolves, starry skies, light. The use of light is incredible here. And you compound and you know, then you throw in Brent and Berna's production design. And the icing on the cake are the performances by Mina Suvari and Stuart Townsend as Treya and Ken. Absolutely outstanding. Outstanding. As we watch the emotional roller coaster, but always with positivity and always embracing and based upon that transcendent love. As you'll hear me uh, talk about in this interview with Sebastian, you watch this film and you see that love is truly the alpha and the omega in the world. Um, so, rather than listen to me prattle on, why don't we just cut, I'll have Pam plug in and cut to our exclusive pre-recorded interview with Sebastian Siegel talking about grace and grit. Hello. Hi, Sebastian. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you, Debbie? Well, I'm excited to be talking to you about grace and grit. Uh, I'm excited to be talking to you, too. This is, it is visual poetry. It is emotional poetry. Um, I love how you've taken this, this real-life story, these real people, and you focus on what really is a transcendent love as your the primary story with cancer just being a supporting storyline. And You're, no, go. I love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it and you really, it's I, I, you know, it has a very poetic Terrence Malick feel to it. Thanks to some beautiful cinematography, you have some exquisite Im imagery happening here. You use, you know, superimposition and dissolves, especially in that third act with the starry skies and in the first act with the explosions of light. And then you bring in this incredible score from Catherine and Kim. And, and I, I'm a huge fan of their work uh, as it yeah. is. So to see them, what they bring to Grace and Grit, you, you, you let the score capture the melancholy and the grief rather than harp on grief with uh, with Kim uh, with Ken and Treya um, you let the score do that you the images don't harp on sadness and grief you let the score do that and you let them bring in some scoring that has beautiful tremolo passages that feel melancholy while we're seeing the beauty of love visually. It is truly, you know, a perfect meld, Sebastian. Just so well done. Thank you so much for that. 
Um, you know, Kim and Catherine are ex- wonderful, and um, was, when we were, you know, what you said there really hits on, I think, a lot of the transcendent themes um, in the way that um, man and woman are on screen, so we see that, but this is really a story about the moon and the stars, and when Kim and Catherine and I were discussing it, you know, first, like, I was going to say, well, this is a woman's story, and I was saying, well, no, it's a, you know, it's, it's told through her voice and his eyes, and then eventually, you know, her voice carries on through him, and then it lives on beyond him, and then them, ultimately, right? But really, this is a story about the moon and the stars, so we're mixing, you know, we're going through the score, and they send me some stems, and I would say, like, all right, pull back the violin, let's up, you know, go more assertively on the cello, and this needs to be, like, I like to juxtapose things in the way that you noted with Terrence Malick that pushes the audience beyond time, mm-hmm. because that's how we remember life, and that's how we feel life. So, uh, you know, when they're, like, kissing or it's joyous, I want to go really heavy and gravity into that, you know, to, to, to give a sense of what's happening beyond our lives. So, anyways, they sent me this uh, short uh, two-minute piece or something, and I was, you know, we were discussing it a little bit, and then I said, okay, in this scene, and there was a scene where uh, Stuart is in Germany in the bar, and then he uh, is underwater and it comes up. This is sort of like his ultimate darkest crucifixion moment mm-hmm. that culminates in sort of his resurrection. In other words, he comes to the surface yep. and he says, look, I'm going to lose this woman in this life, but I'm bound to her forever. That he now, when he looks up at the stars from being underwater at night, he sees her up in the stars. And he knows that although he has to let her go in this lifetime, he's going to be with her forever. And so when I was discussing that piece of music with Kim and Catherine, I said, okay, I need in this the sound i need the, the weight of a supernova juxtaposed by the twinkle of a star <laughs> so fine so then i and then literally I, I literally debbie i three minutes later i said did i just say that <laughs> right? so now the great thing about kim and Catherine is that you know kim calls me and he says it's just no no i get it sebastian i totally get it right? these are these are wonderful artists right He's like, but I just have one question for you first. What does the sound of a super, the gravity of a supernova sound like? <laughs> so I'm on the phone with Kim at like two in the morning. I'm going like this. <laughs> like then he's thinking, he goes, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it, Sebastian. <laughs> you know? And oh, then, um, my God. And then when we went in the mix, you know, um, you know, they said, you know, they're brilliant musicians. And so, you know, I'm getting all the stems independently. And then I thought then over the overarching, you know, theme throughout musically was the cello mm-hmm. there were a lot of things where I would pull down on uh, you know other things and pull up on the cello because it felt so strong and, and romantic and then there's a lot of these uh, sort of uh, war drums etc that I used in there for around Stewart's character that are just spectacular so thank you and also about what you said about uh, you know cancer being just a member in the plot which is the case like in Titanic where the, the ship goes down this is not a movie Titanic is not a movie about a boat yeah, this thinking of the ship is just what allows these two uh, characters to confront their mortality. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that it gives their love and urgency, and that when we feel a sense that we're going to lose love, it oftentimes prompts us to do things that we might not otherwise do. It prompts us to step up and give ourselves more fully, and I thought that was the romantic aspect of her illness, that it allowed both of these human beings to become more. Absolutely. And I have to say, I love the way we see, we feel 
through Treya's, uh, through Treya's emotions, but we see through Ken's eyes. He is our eyes observing everything that's happening around them. And I, yeah. I found that really interesting structurally. But this all leads back to when you are so moved by Ken's book, and you decide you want to you want to adapt this. You want to turn it into a film. Where do you even start putting pen to paper to adapt this and adapt it so that you can come up with a a visual tonal bandwidth that will evoke and bring to life the emotion of the book. Beautiful question and. Um very clearly, I had this sense of this, it being a story about ultimately the moon and the stars, and i.e. when I say that, I mean that love goes beyond us, that it was here before we got here, it's here after we're gone, and that we that we find ourselves dropping into love, that we find this, you know, that romantic sensibility about love, about life beyond, about love beyond life is, is always percolating, and that we open up to that power. And so in terms of articulating that on screen, what you said early, you know, what you said at the top about it being poetic, I greatly appreciate. And in the way that clearly Malik is, uh, I didn't study his films, but I've seen all his films, and he's clearly affected me as a filmmaker. I shot this on very comparable lenses that he shot Tree of Life on, and I'm using light in certain ways um, to evoke another character like with sound. You know, that in, in other words, uh, you know, when they're going to get married, I want to make that scene as dreamy as possible, as otherworldly as possible. But the scenes right before and right after it are the most grounded scenes that I want. In other words, I think my duty then as a filmmaker at that point is I want to put the audience in this world. I want the shoes to feel real. I want the tears to feel real. I want the characters to feel like if they walked in the room, you'd say, I know these people. Right, this, mm-hmm. this, this is so raw and real. But then I want to push them into this otherworldly realm gently. And the first time I do that in this movie is 20 minutes in, right? Yep. It's a wedding scene that it makes all of a sudden it's like, whoa! By that point, the, the audience is in, they're in. And then I pull it back and bring it back to the real world, and then push it. And really, the use of of, of light to be able to do that, uh, juxtaposing lights and darks, and then also doing uh, you know some very uh, longer single, you know, oneers to to be able to give it a a kind of theatrical, poetic quality. Ultimately, I think that what you said about it being poetic is that like a a poetic film or even a piece of poetry or music, it's immersive and it's experiential. And so I want the audience to experience the heartbreak, experience the hope. I want them to see these people fall in love, but I also want an individual to be reawakened to love or have a sense of hope and love and 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 and, and feel that kind of uh, you know to go through that and I think that I you know as a, as a cinephile myself um, sitting in movies where I walk out and I feel like the champion I feel like I've been heartbroken I feel like I've been resurrected that's for me the movies that have stayed with mm-hmm. me and so I want to if I can touch that in, in an audience person well, and you certainly do that here. And something that I noticed that I really love in your construct is that first act, up to that twenty-minute mark. You know, it's very open. It's very light. It's it's there, it, there's hope. The sunlight is bright. 
we moved to Lake Tahoe. We've got, we're dealing with cancer and the entire production design and your lighting, we get into a very angled, very geometric, yet symmetrical um, house. And it represents, you know, those hard angles are almost like the analytical approach that Treya and Ken are taking to the disease and how to treat it and how to move on while still being themselves. So that visual dynamic that you have speaks volumes metaphorically. And then when we get into Colorado with the third act, we've got even heavier woods and candlelight, firelight, you know, two of the most beautiful lights for women. Just ask them. They'll tell you. <laughs> and throw moonlight in there, too. Um, but, you know, it's warm. But at the same time, you have some incredible I, kudos to your DP, to Shan, um, because you've got an incredible, like one of the, the later images, it focuses on the framing into the bedroom. And while it looks and feels almost like a cocoon or a blanket at the same time, it resembles very much the entrance to a mausoleum um, and this idea of death. And I love this progression that you've developed through the color, through the woods, through the production design, and then defining colors and, t and moods in between. You know, U.S. hospitals are sickly yellow and clinical. German hospitals, they're bluer, they're a little bit lighter, but they're also a little cloud to them because it's a, a experimental treatment, more or less. So you really play with that metaphor in your design, and I just so appreciate that. Debbie, thank you so much for that. I do, you know, as a filmmaker, I, at some juncture when we go into it, I think of myself just as a carpenter, as a, as a cabinet maker, as a craftsman. And so I do an enormous amount of prep in every department. So working with production design, working with costumes, and then obviously Sean and I, my DP, you know, we've done four projects together. So he knows exactly what I want. We have to wear simpatico on a film like this. That's important. You know, we've shot underwater on a Zodiac, on a yacht, in a helicopter, you know, so we've done everything together. And so we did, you know, a week of lens testing where I literally acted out every part. And then we'd look at the footage and I'd say, now let's go on a 14 or a 20 on this one. You know, and then some of these scenes that I want to be really dreamy, we shot at, you know, 200 frames a second to give it that sort of poetic quality that, you know, that might make it seem otherworldly. Um, and then, um, you know, I couldn't have been more fortunate, you know, with all the people I was, all the brilliant artists I was able to collaborate with from costumes to, uh, you know, every single detail on set, you know, obviously decorating this world with Ken's pads and papers and pens and mm -hmm. books and Treya's artworks and workings, uh, you know, is integral to being able to, you know, paint who these pictures were, who these people are on screen. Yeah, and the, the way you have all of that designed and structured, without wasting exposition in dialogue, you tell us, you show us who these people are emotionally and intellectually. And it's a very efficient way to tell a story, but in a story like this, it's an important way so that we don't lose any moments of this melding of the, the transitions of love. And, you know, it, this film, you really thought this out, Sebastian. I'm, I'm curious, how challenging was the editing on this one? Because you, you had to get... 
the emotional balance and this pace so spot on. I'm, I'm curious how challenging the editing was with Chris. You know, uh, he's just brilliant, and we're going to do another picture together for sure. And, um, you know, we spent, I was at his place uh, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. for five months or something every day, pretty much, except for Sunday and some half days and Saturdays, um, you know, because we were really breaking down seconds and instants. And, um, you know, the, my first cut was two and a half hours, and I'll come out with a director's cut in, you know, probably two years, 24 months or something like that. But then I knew I wanted to have a to have some sort of accessibility. I wanted to cut this film to under two hours. Um, <clears throat> so I think one of the things uh, that that uh, Christopher and I or Simpatico on was that he was also a real cinephile. He loves poetic movies that are immersive and experiential. He also, you know, we had both just recently watched The Hidden Life, you know, which was Malik's last really spectacular film. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that pushing those boundaries of time, you know, to allow the audience to go beyond time means jumping forward and back, you know, so to, to tell the story where you're in one room and then you're next, and it doesn't really matter if that's the future or the past, but I like to go, you know, and as I, when I adapted the screenplay uh, from the book, to go inside the character's head and see what the character's thinking about, to, to articulate their feelings through their memories inside of their head, whether it's as a child or Maybe it's even like when Treya first puts her head on Ken's chest, she's actually remembering something from the future. And, um, you know, when I came up with that, well, you know, Chris and I were in editing, I thought, ah, let's see this, but let's reverse it. You know, let's reverse the, the, the film negative so that, you know, it's just it's just subtly suggestive. And then I, we later <clears throat> show that scene. It, it's not even recognizable, you know, when she puts her head on his chest, but you feel it. And then when we then later get to that scene, Essentially, what you've done is you've created, you've told this story and the idea of love. Love is the alpha and the omega. It is the beginning and the end, and it's infinite. And you really bring that to life here. question before I let you go, Sebastian. Um, because of the, the challenges of a film like this, the emotions, the fact that we have a real person who is alive and living today, this is his story as well as Treya's story, that, that puts a certain kind of onus on you, I'm sure, emotionally. So I'm very curious as to what, in bringing this to life, with such loving care, actually, you know, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now take forward into your future projects? I, as a storyteller, I trust my intuition. Um, I am comfortable um, knowing that life is going to end and I am grateful for the opportunity to breathe it here and now. Um, and I think about that with everything that I do in so much as I think about what is worth the price of the candle. In other words, the light is going to burn. And so how are we going to burn that light? So I'm willing to give myself fully to everything that I do. 
And I think that trusting the intuition is that ultimate guide that our our brains, our minds can only guide us so far. Yeah, that our impulses are, are dangerous, but that our deep instincts, our intuitions are ultimately what guide us for everything. Who we're going to love, what we're going to do, how we're going to, to share, who we're going to become, how we're going to show up in this world. And I think as a filmmaker, um, in any aspect of film, um, you know, as an actor, scoring, etc., editing, trusting those deep instincts. And um, I trust those instincts, and I trust uh, those intuitions. And I think that it was the intuition that ultimately had me want to make this into a movie. And then through every scene, uh, from whether it was writing it or uh, editing it or scoring it and collaborating with uh, these other extraordinary artists, really trusting the intuition, you know, to take those risks. Uh, because we only have one brief instant in this world. Uh, and it, why not, like, let the firefly burn bright? Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad you trusted your intuitions with Grace and Grit. It certainly paid off for you with this one because this is an exquisite film, Sebastian. You're wonderful. I'm a fan. Um, thank you so much, Debbie. It was so wonderful to talk to you. Oh, same here, Sebastian. I can't wait to do it again, and I can't wait to see what you bring me next. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Sebastian, and have a great weekend. Uh, you too. I hope to see you. Oh, same here, for sure. Thanks, Sebastian. Thank you, Debbie. Bye-bye. I truly can't wait to see what Sebastian brings us next. Um, he is a very, very gifted filmmaker. He is a visualist and, translate those vi and translates those visuals beautifully into emotional poetry. Absolutely outstanding film. Hey, Pam, since I can't see you, do we have Anna on the other line? Anna's on the line. Well, let's go ahead and so let's, let's connect right now then with the wonderful Anna Elizabeth James. Hi, Anna. Hi. How are you? Well, I am very excited to be speaking with you. You have to forgive our kind of makeshift broadcast today. I'm stuck at home and not in the studio, so we're <laughs> Everything is remote today. <laughs> Love it. So it's um, the way it should be, right? <laughs> this is, I have to tell you, Deadly Illusions, I did not know what to expect. I had seen your prior film, both of them, Emma's Chance and Destined to Ride. Destined to Ride has a wonderful Maddie Carroll in it, uh, who I've known for many, many years. So when I watched Deadly Illusions, you really went to the opposite end of the spectrum here. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. Um, you, you know, the, those two horse, I call them horse tween movies, those were to get those notches on the belt, and uh, they're good family films that I'm really proud of. But um, my intention with becoming a filmmaker and going to film school and all of that was to hopefully push the envelope a little bit. Well, you certainly do that with Deadly Illusions. How would you describe this film? For, for your audience, obviously not a family film. So anybody that is familiar with Destined to Ride, no, no, no. <laughs> the kids are not yeah. going to see Deadly Illusion. <laughs> I guess I would say, I guess I would say, um, I hope, I hope audiences or my, my target audience, which is, I guess, women like us, um, would look mm -hmm. at it as sort of their, their pulp, pulpy fiction you know, psychosexual thriller that tantalizes you 
in a cerebral way, but also in a hopefully sexually stimulating way, all the while giving you a, a, that fun that fun ride. We've got a lot of twists and turns in here, and this is essentially it's the story of a famous author, Mary Morrison. Um, is a very comfortable lifestyle. Her publisher is pushing her to write another book, but she's content being a wife and mother, and she just hasn't really been inspired to write anything. But because her husband did something bad with investing their money, (laughs) she now has to write another book in order to take advantage of the, the $2 million advance that the publisher is going to give her. But part and parcel of that is she's got to hire a nanny to help care for the children and do things around the house that gives her time to write. And this is a basic premise, works beautifully, but everything is not what it seems on the surface. And you continually twist that knife and take us on this ride that is delicious. It is so fun, Anna, because we're never quite sure what is real what is fiction, what may be in the book, what is just in Mary's head. Um, Fascinating how you structured this. How did you come up with all of this on paper and then translate it so beautifully visually for the screen? Wow, thank you for saying all that. Yeah, more, more than anything, I wanted it to be fun. Um, I think people who go into it or audiences who go into it and are expect, you know, they expect one thing and they don't know much about what they're getting into could get so frustrated. But if you sort of just let go and let it wash over you, you end up having a lot more fun. Um, I always say, you know, be two champagne glasses in um, and you'll have a much better time. I guess at the core of it, I really wanted to create something that would tantalize me. And it's this weird place where, you know, we're always serving our audience, but I kind of got selfish about it. And I was like, well, what would keep me really intrigued and not fall asleep? And so I sat down, you know, with this idea, this, this beautiful, innocent young woman taking care of children and how even she doesn't know that she's being seductive or alluring because her youth and her um, sweetness is just so unassuming. And I sort of just took that idea and and asked myself questions like, why am I seeing this imagery? What is this about? And uh, I basically got like personal with myself, I guess you could say. It is like a subconscious stream of um, intuition. And I I know enough about story structure that I also knew when I could break the rules and I wanted to keep you guessing. And I wanted to keep myself guessing so when I was writing it you know if I wasn't wondering what was happening next then I knew my audience wouldn't either well I have to say a big part of what makes this film work is your casting with Kristen Davis as Mary Morrison and Greer Grammer as Grace the nanny um and the way those two feed off of each other and particularly Greer with her performance She is, you never know, she gets this look about her of, is it naivete, is it 
almost a Chester Cat kind of all-knowing thing that she knows more than we know. And Greer is so nuanced in her performance that you cannot look away from her. And it's a good, and, you know, the fact that she is luminous on camera, Mike McMillan's uh, lighting and lensing as cinematographer, it just showcases her even more. Oh, yeah, thank you. Totally agree. I think the thing about Greer is, you know, I worked with her on my first feature um, and I got to know her really well. And I think as this idea was bubbling up in my mind, she really was the impetus for it to to come out. She was the first person I pitched it to and I was actually afraid to pitch it to her because I was sort of daunted by the material. Um, And after I finished pitching it to her, she was so excited. I was like, oh no, this means I have to write it. Because I knew that <laughs> the way the way she is with her eyes and just everything about her, you really, this, in my head, this wouldn't have worked with anyone else. And so I, I, I did write the part for her. And, and it's so fun to see the reaction, how so many other women and men feel the same way I feel. And to see that you know, come to full fruition is so gratifying. Oh, once you see Greer in this role, you cannot envision anybody else playing Grace. You just, you you can't. And compounding that is Julia Ehrlich's costume design because she dresses Greer's character in these little schoolgirl, you know, pleated skirts, and little sweaters, and which is fulfilling probably 90% of the guys out there, their schoolgirl fantasies. Um, but, <laughs> but the costuming and the contrast by putting Kristen Davis in, you know, slinky, you know, black evening wear and even very trendy and upscale um, sweaters, uh, dresses, but always in these darker, more muted colors, the grays, the blacks, uh, a muted blue, whereas we get the, the whites and the, and the springtime youthfulness uh, on, on grace. And it's, this is a prime example of where you're costuming in a current, in a period piece that's present day where it really comes into play in helping create your character form your character and your story yeah thank you so much for saying that uh yeah my teammates they're brilliant artists and it was so fun to see them take the material and put it first um in every regard mike angelia my entire team you know we're, we're just focusing on costume design right now um went above and beyond and they really believed in that ride that we were giving the audience. And when you commit to that, you make choices that play into that, right? Yeah. That we gave that schoolgirl fantasy maybe to the men out there, but at the end of the day, what we're trying to evoke is this idea of this character coming out of a storybook. Is this even Mm -hmm. real? And it, and really at the core of it is we want you to question your own reality, you know, um, we want to enter into that headspace where you ask questions, period. You know, rather than yeah. just being fed what to think, you're you're now put into this active place of imagination. You know, we've, we've gotten some flack on 
quote-unquote having plot holes. But the truth is there's no plot holes. We've, we've thought of every iteration of the story. You know, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure. We want your imagination to take over. Um, and so I was really excited. Like, people who love the film just really appreciate all those nuances, like you're saying. Um, and, and they love it, like, full throttle. And they really went on that ride. Well, you know, there I don't see plot holes here. And where you where you know, a big argument defending that there are no plot holes is the fact that your protagonist in the film is Mary Morrison. She is a murder mystery writer, not Jessica Fletcher, because Jessica Fletcher wouldn't write these kind of murder mysteries. <laughs> but you know, the the imagination is allowed to take hold, which is why our imaginations have to step in. And when we get to the third act, and we're not going to give away any spoilers, but when mm-hmm. we get to the third act, you satisfy every single possible scenario mm-hmm. and leave it wide open for a sequel or for us to even ponder further as to, wow, what just happened? Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah, no, thank you for saying that, that That last 40 minutes, 30 minutes, um, yeah, every scenario is well thought out. And if you if you get into the nooks and crannies of it, like I was reading a whole bunch of theories on Reddit, and it's some people really, their imaginations did take over, and they did figure out all of the, you know, the pathways that my brain came up with, um, which was astounding. And I don't know, I just love people sort of being woken up in this genre the psychosexual thriller and and I hope they see that coming from a female gaze is is really something we haven't seen lately actually I don't even know if we've seen it yeah. in the last decade at all um and so I don't maybe think we thinking, have yeah <laughs> and it just goes back to like that was what I want what I was longing for and I and I think as artists it's really important we we follow those instincts um, because usually what, what we as individuals are longing for, a lot of people around us or, you know, in our societies are longing for that too. I mean, the film did really well worldwide before even, you know, America like came to it, you know? And I think that's really interesting because that means it's translating in all these different languages and cultures and, and regardless of it being, you know, a story set in this country, the you know, the the basic storyline translates to all these different cultures. And I think I love that. That's what excites me as a filmmaker is like, like, you know, we're connecting with each other on this, like one, one pathway of a story. Yeah. And, and it's not just translating it for other cultures and there's something resonant that everybody can see, but you could, you could have this happening in any era as well. This is a timeless kind of story, um, which I find really interesting. It just happens to be set in the 21st century. This could very easily have been set back in the 50s. It could have been set in the 1800s with a strong, independent woman who is a writer, um, who wants more than and sees more and imagines Mm -hmm. more than what is, quote unquote, expected of her. And mm-hmm. I like that aspect of this, Anna. You really tap oh, into that, that timelessness. 
I love that you mentioned yeah. that because I did try really hard to avoid anything that, you know, there's stories that you want to know what time period you're in, but in this story, we, I did want to keep it as a real, you know, so it does wash you over. So you're not thinking about those semantics because at the end of the day, human nature, like we evolve and grow as a world and a society, but as individuals, human nature, it's, there's certain things about us that will never change. And, and so that's what's so beauty about being a storyteller of stories is it, it reveals that underbelly of of human nature mm-hmm. and all of the the things that go on with it and I you're right um women I'm sure there's as many instances where you know our our grandmothers great-grandmothers great-great-greats had that feeling of like am I crazy or is is this person that I'm with crazy and and can I, how can I make heads or tails of it um and that was sort of I wanted to live in that space where you just didn't have full clarity so it's been really fun, like, see, hearing your reaction and, and audiences like you, um, when they really get it, it's, that's been really, really fun. It, it motivates me to keep going. Well, and something that you also do with the character of Mary, and Kristen's performance plays so well into this, and women over, over 40, over 50 are really going to tap into this. We, you give her a vulnerability where she's questioning her own worth. It's, you know, wow, I'm not cute and adorable, and maybe I should get plastic surgery. And applause, applause to you for Dermot's character of Mary's husband, Tom, for saying, no, you don't need anything. I love your brain. I love your intelligence. And that is something we also don't see enough of. And you bring that, you capture that vulnerability that women have, but you also show a smart man who wants somebody for their intelligence and their brain. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's that moment in the movie, I think it makes people squirm and giggle a little. And and that's okay, um, because Dermot is so adorable when he says it. And, And really that typifies that, this is a female wish fulfillment. This is what we want mm-hmm. our reality to be. And we need to see more of this in film. That's part of, like, why I decided to become a filmmaker. And, and it's not that it's, you know, the whole film, but it's these little moments that all add up to the tapestry of our culture and why art yeah. and, and all voices are so needed. Because, yeah, I think there's a lot of things going on when people watch it. And, the, and one of them is this aspect where it's like, wait a minute. What wait, like this is what women want? Like this is what they want to hear and and female wish fulfillment? What's that? And because most of our movies are about the male um wish fulfillment. We don't even realize it. The other the other fun thing was um, you know, having a woman being thrust, you know, she's juggling two different parts of life, right? Motherhood and that that career mm-hmm. and thrust back into work and so many of us experience that and it's such a it's it jumbles with your head a little it's a you know a hard transition and so I wanted to to evoke that and then I also you know I got notes back on an earlier draft where someone said you know the husband and wife should have problems they should have marriage problems doesn't make sense blah 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 and I was like no I was so you know very stringent on this. I, I wanted to show that, look, you can have a healthy marriage and still have sexual longings. That's, that's human nature. Mm-hmm. That's being a human. 
Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, this isn't just about, you know, it's like, okay, we get Greer's character of Grace in the little schoolgirl outfit, but you also give us Dermot in the shower with a naked butt shot. (laughs) Yeah. What more could we ask for? What more could... What more could we ask for, Anna? I know. Bless Dermot's heart. He is such, he's such my hero and will be for the rest of my life, all of our lives, because he really got the material. He championed it on day one when he showed up. He said, it's really about these two. I'm just an accessory. Like, you know, he, and he was down for that ride. And when we shot that scene, he said, you know, Anna, clear the set. And I was like, okay, because it wasn't scripted that we would see his bum. And he's like, we're going to do a shot. (laughs) the way I think, think it should go and then you know and he's like I just need to tuck it and and so that was really fun and and he saw that we were flipping the narrative how many times have we seen the woman in the shower and the man comes in with a knife so he was that was that was what motivated me to write it was I knew that that was the climax of the of the piece and it just tickles me it makes me giggle every time I think about it or we talk about it because and, and that's the other thing. People don't know if they're supposed to laugh. Some some who are not familiar with the genre. And you're supposed to cackle. You're supposed to just be in utter astonishment. And just just let that, again, let that, that ride wash over you. Yeah. Um, and wash it does, literally and figuratively, uh, <laughs> in, the, in that moment. You know, how how challenging was the casting for this film, Anna? You've got an incredible cast, but this could not have been easy. Granted, you've worked with Greer before, and you bring Greer in, you want her for Grace, but then you've got to get somebody, and of course, you go with Kristen with the darker hair versus the blonde, so we're Mm -hmm. seeing these, these metaphoric visual contrasts happening, but this whole meld. And then you get uh, Shinola Hampton in there as Mary's best friend, Elaine, who is a successful therapist. Um, You know, how challenging was it putting this group together? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, in this story, we have four really interesting characters. Um, These these sort of films, these lower budgets, that's really all you can afford. and, And you have to write characters that actors want to play if there's not enough scenes and not enough you know for them to bite the sink their teeth into they're not going to be interested and so and I learned that on the other films that I I had made and and so going into this I knew that I was poking the bear with doing this sub genre from the female gaze so I knew I had to make sure each of these characters had a lot of you know bite to them I think I also, I had such, like, you know, clarity about what I wanted. So I wrote letters. I wrote very impassioned letters. And I explained why I wanted to make such a, such a sexually charged piece. I wanted to show that less is more. I wanted to show that we can tantalize and get your juices going by showing less, right? And also, um, you know, just, just the idea that, that something cerebral like this could be more engaging than pornography. Um, and I, mm-hmm. and I also felt like, you know, female sexuality isn't showcased in, in films like this often. And, and so 
going in with that, like a reason of why we're doing this, like the background reason and how we'll always keep it classy and we'll keep it, you know, in that zone. Um, that was a huge part of it. And then, cause you're also, you're not only pitching those actors, you're pitching their whole teams. There's agents and managers and lawyers, like every, there's a mass amount of people that have to get behind the material. And, um, yep. luckily I, I found those people. Yeah, this is not an easy film to find all of those backers and all of those producers for because it is not what is expected. Anytime you've got exactly. something that is not expected, then you got to you got to sell it. You got to push it a little harder, you know, to to, you know, it becomes the tortoise in the hare. Filmmaking is already, exactly. you know, tortoise in the hare. Um, mm -hmm. and scrambling and trying to get to that finish line. But it becomes even more so with a film like this that changes things up and, and gives us the unexpected. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, mir it's a miracle, um, a group of people, we, we band together and we're like, yeah, this is, this is fun. I'll never forget, like, on the third night of shooting, Mike McMillan, our DP, was like, this movie's so fucked, and I love it. Oh, sorry, I don't know if I can swear. Um, <laughs> but he, but he, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but it was just, like, that moment where it was like, yeah, this is so crazy, and I'm, I love it, you know? And, and the whole crew, we all knew what movie we were making, and we were, we were all down for that ride. Well, you know, something that you also do is you don't spare humor in here. In the first act of the film, where Mary is interviewing potential nannies, you give us the mo this montage that is hilarious. It <laughs> reminds me of um, Diane Keaton in Baby Boom, um, mm. where she's interviewing nannies. And it, it's so funny. And the way Mike shoots it, it's light, it's bright. Um, so we really get to see the lunacy of some of these people. <laughs> yeah, and the lunacy hopefully that you're going to go on. And hopefully you're giggling. And th this is how it's it's more of a feeling, right? You can't take it so literally. But this is how it feels when you set out to find caregivers for your children. You're just like, why can't why can't I find someone like me? <laughs> yeah, it, it's not like it was, dec you know, 40, 50 years ago when you call up the neighbor person and say, hey, come babysit my kid. Um, exactly. There's a lot more to that now, and we really get to see that play out, but with humor. And, you know, another great scene that you give us is the scene with Mary and Grace in the pool. And mm -hmm. kudos to Drum and Lace, who did your scoring and your music, because in that scene, we're getting music that has that 1950s, 60s, that Donna Reed, everything is perfect, happy housewife lilt. And then we cut, and we're no longer in the pool, but then we get they go take us into this string tremolo that it's like, okay, <laughs> something is amiss here mm -hmm. and i and that happens repeatedly. The scoring in here that they have done the drum and lace has done is amazing yeah she's she's a genius, she's gonna win all the awards her career's vast and incredible and i feel so lucky that i got her on the <laughs> forefront um <laughs> yeah sophia she really she really got the material too and and i wanted something that was like more progressive and sound had mm -hmm. like it, it echoed back to those 80s 
thrillers, um, psychosexual thrillers, yep. but then also was backing in us to a, 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 a futuristic sound. And she does that so well in how she crafted um, what, what, I was, <laughs> what I would like to call wall-to-wall music. Um, but we did. We wanted to make like a fever dream and, and again, have it wash over you. And, and she really, she did that. And not only did she do it brilliantly, she did it eight, nine months pregnant. Um, wow. You know, and she's, yeah, she's a young mother and bravo. I'm so proud of her. And I'm really proud of our, our score for this film. Well, and hand in hand with your score is your sound designer, Nathan Ruley's work uh, as re-recording mixer and sound designer, because you have some really great sound, ambient sound happening in here that melds very beautifully with your scoring. Oh, thank and you for saying that. And it adds another, another textural layer. It really does. Yeah, they... Yeah, they really worked hard, um, both my editor, Brian, and Nathan, um, and myself. I mean, they, they brainstormed some ideas on how we could introduce this water concept early on. We could introduce some of, you know, in the subtext, I guess, of the sound, these elements that you would see later on with the big reveal, the big twist, that you don't even realize you're experiencing. And sound is so powerful, you don't even realize how much it affects you subconsciously. Um, so the work that Nathan did in crafting together, all of that, along with, you know, just going along with the score. I mean, if you look, one of my favorite scenes is the bath scene, um, where it's just Greer and Kristen. And Mm -hmm. really, if if you analyze that scene, every department is working at a plus level. Like if you break down and pull apart each, each craft, um, you know, the acting, the sound, the music, the editing, the production design, the cinematography, just every, it, it's its an incredible feat. And I'm really proud of that scene because, again, we're showing a female gaze that we usually don't see. Well, and that particular scene is truly, it's a visual stunner. Because, number one, you've got Mike, it's set, you've got windows on one side of the, of the bathroom, and you've got light coming through. You're in a white, white tub. Milk is being added to the bath water. So it's white on white, all this purity. Rose petals mm-hmm. are getting thrown in that are these pale, muted peaches and, and pinks. And it's all very feminine. It's all very light. And, of course, then we take, we take a turn. Is this real? Is this in Mary's head? You know, what is happening here? But this is where Lindsay Ferguson, your production designer, and your set decorator, Adrian Segura, really, really excelled. And throughout the entire house that you shot this in, um, the production design and that location are so important to telling us and, and defining who Mary and Tom are as a quote-unquote power couple. Exactly, yes. All of those elements combined and those artists, they're the way, again, it goes back to the, everyone was committed to the material and creating this, this, um, you know, this experience where, where you can't make heads or tail of anything. And in order to do that, you have to create a timeless, you know, ethereal space, head space. And so every choice is, is hinging upon that goal and, 
yeah, they're all Lindsay, Adrian, everyone, everyone on the production design team, including even our homeowner who, um, you know, her name's Lori. She, she was really apprehensive to having us shoot there and I became really good friends with her and sort of begged her. And she also got behind the, the story. Um, all these things, you know, are necessary and needed. It, it just takes an army, really, to, to pull something like this off. Mm-hmm. So now what is next for you, Anna? After this, you've now done your tween horse movies. Now you've done <laughs> this psychosexual thriller for the adult audience. So where do you mm-hmm. go from here? That is such a good question. I'm actually working on a script right now. I hope to have it done in the next two weeks. It's called Blunt. And it's, I would say it's a thriller. I don't know if it's psychosexual, but it, it edges that way. But it's about a single mom who inherits a country home from her grandmother. And she decides to go back to school. Um, and so she's living out there in the country with her son. And the when we open up the story, the son is going to her, his father's for the weekend. So she heads back to her, the house. And when she walks in, um, she, she Airbnbs her home for guests when her son is with the father. And when she walks in, she gets hit on the head, um, blunt force trauma to the head. And when she awakens, she's tied up in her own bedroom, unable to escape. And as she's lying there fighting for her life, hoping someone finds her, she traces back the clues of how this could have happened, becoming the detective of her own story. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, and we, it's, we're in that headspace of, you know, is any of this real? Is she a reliable narrator? Yada, yada, yada. And so, it's, yeah, it's called Blunt. Ooh, that sounds <laughs> like it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, so that will be yeah. the next one. And I've had that idea for eight years. I've had it longer than I even had this one. So I feel like it's the, ne- the necessary next step. And you know, it's a small contained thriller, which is always nice for budding filmmakers to to have. And again, I, I'm trying mm-hmm. really hard to stick to that idea of, of telling stories from a certain female gaze. Um, I feel like there's so many different stories that I could tell, but I do feel like I have like a duty almost to to really champion stories that we, we don't see often. Mm. Well, I think you've got a winner here with Deadly Illusions. There is no illusion about your skill as a filmmaker and storyteller, Anna. I thank Aww. you so much for being thank on the you. show today. I'm... I hope you'll I hope you'll come back in the future. I would love to and thank you for really going on that ride with Deadly. I love I loved all of your you know, questions and, and all of the details you saw, really, that means so much. And all of our artists will be tickled to hear hear this, too. Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much. And you have a great rest of your day, Anna. Okay. Thanks, Debbie. You, too. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is all the time we have today. But very quickly, before we go, just wanted to tell you, this week, Three big releases, big in big in my eyes and in my heart. Uh, number one, we got a Wednesday release. The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard opens Wednesday, June sixteenth. Ryan Reynolds, Samuel L. Jackson, they're just window dressing to Selma Hayek. 
This is Selma's film. Uh, it is action-packed beginning to end. You're going to have a lot of fun with this one. Friday, a film that I am enamored with, 12 Mighty Orphans. It is directed by Ty Roberts, written by Lane Garrison, based on Jim Dent's book. And it is the story of football coach Rusty Russell. Uh, the story set in the, in the very early, in the early 20th century in Texas. Um, it is the story of the Mighty Mites, uh, orphans in a Masonic orphanage, and their trials and tribulations, and how Rusty Russell and his wife Juanita and their family came there to teach and Rusty to coach football. Just an amazing story. Um, Rusty Russell, as you football fans may know, is credited with developing the spread formation that we know so well in football today. Um, it's an inspiring story. The production values are superb. Cinematographer is David McFarland. He did. He was the cinematographer on Jared Moshe's The Ballad of Lefty Brown that starred Bill Pullman. This film, Twelve Mighty Orphans, Stars, Luke Wilson as Rusty Russell, Treat Williams, Martin Sheen, Wayne Knight, Robert Duval. I think Duval is making his way through every sports genre there is. But I can't recommend it highly enough. And of course, Lane Garrison, who always pops up in Ty's films, uh, in addition to writing the script, uh, he also is one of the stars of the film of one of the most obnoxious, nasty characters you will ever see, and he does it so well. But 12 Mighty Orphans is out at the end of the week, and yes, I have already spoken at length with Ty, so you're going to be hearing that interview. You'll be able to find it on BehindTheLensOnline.net probably next weekend. And of course, for the whole family, it's Disney and Pixar with Luca, streaming on Disney+. Plus and not requiring premium access and paying an additional $30. This is you're going to get this as part of your Disney Plus. It is beautiful, it is glorious, it is eye-popping color and imagination that we have come to expect from Pixar and Disney. Um, it is for the entire family. You will have fun, you will laugh, you will cry and and the kids are going to want to go run outside and go jump in a lake or in the ocean or into a pool and just embrace the summer. Luca is a film that you want to see time and time again over the coming summer months. So, with that in mind, we'll be back next week. We've got more live guests. Hopefully, I will be back in studio so we don't have disjointed audio happening. So, until then... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.